Welcome to We've Got Issues. I am Joshua Holland. This week, we're going to speak with Ryan Grimm, the DC Bureau Chief for The Intercept, about yet another police killing of a black man in America and what it says about uh, who gets to enjoy Second Amendment rights and the right to defend their home. And, uh, and also says something about the gun lobby's selective outrage. Um, then we're going to speak to Anya Van Wagtendok whose name I hope I'm not mangling too badly, about some uh, curious organizing around that Canadian wingnut trucker convoy, which I guess we shouldn't call a convoy at this point. It has become a a siege of Ottawa, Canada of sorts. Um, Anya wrote about that for Grid News. Uh, This blockade or siege or convoy is uh, inspiring far-right movements all over the world. Although it remains to be seen whether it will be replicated around the world because they tried to do a a trucker convoy in the UK, only a handful of cars and the the usual idiots that turn out for anti-vax protests in London showed up. So it fizzled out miserably. It was uh, not an impressive showing by the, uh, the British truckers, quote unquote. Um, but here at home, the Department of Homeland Security warned that uh, warned local police agencies this week to expect a bunch of right-wing truckers and anti-vaxxers and the like to uh, possibly blockade Washington, D.C. Perhaps on Super Bowl Sunday, there's been scattered reports that the U.S. version of the um, trucker whatever revolt is gaining steam. And this is, we're going to talk to Anya about how this is all kind of transnational anyway. So that's something to look forward to. Um, anyway, we'll talk about more about that later, uh, but we've got a really big show. So let's, uh, let's take a quick break and then come back with Ryan. Grimm. Stay tuned. God, it's finest. Wonder why after my prime is never underestimate your highness. Stripped in melanin, galaxies finest. Put a bit of pressure on the spirit of the highest. Do it, I will. Do it, I will. If they don't mean him, then you betcha I will. If they don't mean me, then you betcha I will. Better be happy, love for the betcha I chill. Welcome back. I'm joined now by Ryan Grimm. Ryan is the Intercept's DC Bureau Chief, the host of their podcast, which is called Deconstructed. And of course, the um, the guy who punched Fox News host Jesse Waters in the mouth. <laughs> Ryan, welcome back to We've Got Issues. A gr- grown man getting in a fist fight. Huh? You know what? It was it was it was warranted. What are you going to do? No jury would convict. Um, <laughs> not in D.C. Not in D.C., no. Ryan has a piece at The Intercept that caught my eye this week. Uh, it was indicative of a larger issue, I think, which is uh, whose gun rights are really protected by the police and also by the gun lobby. Ryan, let's begin at the beginning of this story. Who was Amir Locke and how did he die last week? 
Well, Amir Locke was a, a young man who made the fatal mistake of sleeping over at a friend's house, uh, going to sleep on, on the couch and, you know, t- middle of the night, you know, for, for young, for young men, middle of the night is 6am. Uh, the po- police just come barging in, uh, with a, with a no knock warrant. They had gotten a key from the landlord. So at least they didn't do one of those, you know, gigantic you know, rams that they that they often use to smash down a door. Right. Yeah, they, they can quietly announce themselves, but if everybody's asleep, what you know, what good is quietly announcing themselves? And so they come bursting in, and according to the body cam footage, you can see Amir kind of being woken up by the armed intruders, you know, storming in, and he's got a blanket over top of him, and he, and he starts fumbling around for a gun, a, a, a legal gun that he owns. He's got his, his hand on it, you know, for all the, could, could have been a remote control. It was his, it was his gun. Um, he, he, he wasn't pointing it at the officers. He wasn't even putting his finger on the trigger. Uh, and within seconds of the door being blown open, uh, they, they fire three shots into him and, and end his life with, they never should have been there in the first place using, you know, with this kind of a warrant, but they, there were, uh, clearly other options just jumping on you know everyone knows somebody that you've woken up before in your life you can just you can eat their sleep you can just jump on top of them like so if if they really felt like they were in fear and there was some risk you know they were just feet away from him uh but they made the calculation in their minds instantly that the best thing for them to do in that moment was to squeeze the trigger and put bullets through this blanket and kill this young man the police um, body cam footage found, uh, shows that he, they opened fire nine seconds after entering the apartment. Um, and I, I think it's really important that we make clear that Amir Locke was not a suspect in any crime. Um, right. The police were looking for Amir Locke's 17-year-old cousin who lived in a different apartment in the same building. He was seven floors away. It was his apartment. Um, and the case is almost an exact parallel to the police killing of Breonna Taylor. In that case, neither Taylor nor her bo- boyfriend were alleged to have committed a crime themselves. The cops were after like an ex-boyfriend who mm-hmm. lived several miles away. Um, in that case, the cops said they announced themselves, but there is no evidence to back that claim up. Taylor's then, boyfriend. Right. Taylor's boyfriend. I'm just going to go through it because it's yeah. so similar. Taylor's boyfriend said they did hear did not hear any announcement, and they thought someone was breaking in. He fired his legally owned weapon at what he thought were burglars, and police fired a hail of bullets indiscriminately that killed Taylor in her sleep. Uh, one cop was indicted for recklessly discharging his weapon, but nobody was ever charged for killing um, the young medical worker. Yeah, and, and Taylor's boyfriend actually, even more specifically, thought it was uh, Taylor's ex-boyfriend. Breaking uh, in. Right, because you... You know that can happen. You're, you know, the, you know, a relationship ends. Guy's upset about how the relationship ends. Now he's angry at both his his ex girlfriend and the new boyfriend. And so, you know, that's a reasonable fear that that a couple would have that that the former boyfriend would come barging through the door armed, looking for yeah. trouble. Like that happens. And just one more reason why police shouldn't impersonate former boyfriends barging through doors yeah and then the police tried to um deflect blame for the entire incident onto the former boyfriend again who lived um miles away from from taylor's apartment 
Ryan, what what does it say to you about American policing that we could have an almost identical police killing of an innocent person after the first one gained so much national attention, right? This is the thing that blows me away. It was the focus. The Breonna Taylor killing was a focus of massive protests. There was a criminal case. Um, again, nobody was found guilty of killing her, but there were repercussions for the cop who opened fire indiscriminately through a through portico or whatever. Um, there was a $12 million settlement by the city of St. Louis for Taylor's family and a wrongful death case. Uh, you know, this, this happens and then they do the exact same thing. And I think police did notice that the officer who murdered George Floyd um, went to prison for it. And so I think that you're going to see a change in very precise behavior. Like I don't, I don't think you're going to see a situation for a long time uh, where with video cameras rolling, an officer kneels on a man's neck with other officers around him. Like, and so, but that's, that's how precise the situation is going to have to be, you know, for there to have been, you know, change coming from those protests. And I think what the police also noticed is that those, uh, that the police in the Breonna Taylor case did not go to prison. Right. I think that I think that that was recognized across the board. And if if they had been, if all of them had been prosecuted for for what had happened, uh, just barging into somebody's house, immediately pulling a trigger, uh, killing Breonna Taylor, then I think they would be much more reluctant to carry out these no knock raids, because you know, their argument for why they need to carry these out is that it's safer for them to do it this way and that they it's also harder for then the the criminals to get a, you know to flush down the evidence or to get rid of the evidence or get away or whatever um but a the first part it's not always safer because if you surprise someone in the dead of night in a country that has hundreds of millions of weapons like eventually people are going to shoot back at you and so that yes. you're, you're actually putting yourself in in danger by doing this um but two, it be, if it becomes risky for them from a criminal perspective, like if, if there's a chance that they're going to get prosecuted as a result of these, then they're going to be more less likely to do those. Because you know the, the second last thing that a, a, a cop wants after you know getting killed is getting sent to prison, uh, because that is not a good place for police officers to be. That's right. Uh, and so. There, there, there has to be some sense that there are some consequences. And as a result of there not being consequences in the Breonna Taylor case, uh, there, you know, there wasn't that deterrence. And when it comes to the, the you know, both Amir Locke and Keith, I don't remember Keith's last name, um, who was shot but not killed by Louisville police in, uh, on a, uh, you know, they're both legal gun owners. And, it, and it, then it goes to this question about, why is it that their legal gun rights don't don't carry the same weight as they w- as say a George Zimmerman um, or uh, or the other uh, people that uh, the NRA stands up for? Yeah, yeah. No, this is a really key point, and I, I think it's important to point out that the you know the killing of Breonna Taylor it was it was a little different in that. Um, her boyfriend, Keith Walker is his name. He did fire on the cops and, you know, you can, and the police, of course, they are, they insist that, that we judge this in a very narrow perspective of like what happened in response to 
those those gunshots mm-hmm. and the um internal investigation although there was not a criminal charges there was a departmental investigation and they found that there was that this it was poor planning and poor execution uh sloppy police work led to the situation yes and set up that moment so you, you can't just judge it by that moment and of course this uh anton Locke killing is is different in the sense that he was not pointing a weapon at anybody at the time that he was killed. Right. And their sloppiness is not new either. Yeah. In, in fact, it's been Simps there's been a Simpsons episode about it. You, you, remember, you know that famous scene where officer, you know, what Sheriff Quimby, or I guess that's the mayor, the sh- but the sheriff. Yeah. Uh, he barges into somebody's house and all the police storm in and they are like, you know, they say that who they're looking for and and the guy says, you know, you got the wrong house. And he's like, oh, geez, again? Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's that was 20 or 30 years ago that yeah. that it was a national joke that police were constantly knocking down the wrong door. And so there is a provision in kind of common law, stand your ground law that says that, you know, if you are the one who instigated the conflict, then you lose your self-defense rights. Now, the NRA has tried to, you know, shear that away. And say that no, no, no. You can you can actually start a conflict. You can start a fight, and then you can cite that fight as the thing that caused you to kill this person. Like that's how the NRA would like it to be, but yes. that's that's not traditionally how self defense has been understood. Self defense, it has traditionally been understood that if that you lose your self defense protections if if you started it, basically, if you're the like aggressor. the five year old, the five year old, right. he started it. Yeah, and, that's right. Right. So they start they started they started both of these. I mean, I don't think that ever applied to the police, but um, it, you, it's important to note that they are really eroding that. And that's what uh, Stand Your Ground is about. You don't have a duty to retreat anymore. Right. You mentioned other similar cases. I think um, Philando Castile's case, which was also in the Minneapolis area, was one of the most egregious. Here was a guy who was pulled over for a broken taillight, mm-hmm. broken taillight, driving with his partner uh, and their young child. He told the cop, that he had a licensed firearm as the law requires. If a cop pulls you over, you have a gun in the car, you're supposed to tell them. And the cop just, I mean, there was a little back and forth, but the cop basically just shot him five times as he tried to give him his license in front of his girlfriend and four-year-old daughter. In your piece, you talk about how the NRA, a group that always warns of like stormtroopers coming to take your guns and mm-hmm. your freedoms and whatever, tends to respond to police killings of black people with legal guns who are holding legal firearms. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, they 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 just don't they don't say anything. And uh, if they say anything, uh, they they will uh, ask whether or not and then they, like whether or not Philando Castile had you know, had to weed on him or something like that, you right. know, they, no angel, no right. Angel. The, the, the no angel response. So right. e- either they will kind of discredit the person who has been killed or they will just absolutely say nothing um, rather than saying, you know, we are concerned that a you know legal gun owner, you know, simply for ex- simply for exercising his second amendment rights, you know, is, is no longer alive. Like that would be, an easy statement for if, if you are the NRA, like that's an easy statement for a gun rights organization right. to make if a, if a gun owner uh, is killed for owning a gun and for, for having a gun on him. But they, they just simply don't do that. I had asked the NRA for comment on this particular, uh, on this particular killing. 
on Monday, I guess it was, and the, and the next day they got back to me and said they had a long-standing policy that they don't comment on ongoing investigations. And you know what 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 really there that, that, that's not right. You know they they comment on all sorts of things. Sure. Um, but what really is going on here is that a couple things. One is the culture, the culture war angle here. Like they they have chosen sides in a in a culture war. They also have a a business and cultural relationship with the police. Like they're they're involved in all sorts of police trainings. Um, they have so they have those relationships, and then they also have the culture war relationship with with the police. And police and police fraternities and unions have 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 taken a position that only you know one hundred percent solidarity at all times, un, unless an exception is made, and and an exception was nationally made for the officer who killed George Floyd. Like they, they decided to throw him overboard. Yes. Um, but if an exception is not made, everyone must march in lockstep and there can be no deviation. You know, you, this is a blue line and you, you know, you're with us or you're against us. And so I think the NRA feels like it can't cross that line uh, and, or it will, you know, lose its business relationships with, with police forces uh, and and also, uh, it just feels like it is part of the, you know, it's it's in a culture war, with yeah. the, and the police are their allies in this culture war. Absolutely, none of this should come as a surprise, given mm-hmm. the you know rightward lurch of the NRA. It used to be like when I was a kid, it was actually a gun safety organization. Right. They would do training and, and stuff like yes. that. I mean, that was the real NRA, and it, in the seventies, it was taken over by a small group of far-right ideologues and um, steered to be allies with with the uh, conservative movement in this country. Um, so when they say, you know, good guy with a gun, white is implied mm-hmm. in that just because of the nature of their ideological um, perspective. Your piece starts with this good and provocative lead, which I will quote, the first gun control organization in the United States, you write, was formed after the Civil War by white Southerners bothered by the fact that enslaved people were now free, entitled to vote, and arming themselves to defend that freedom. The group called itself the Ku Klux Klan and organized for the first time in 1866. Can you run down this um, this history that you bring to this piece and kind of connect it to what we've been talking about today? Yeah, and what 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 people might not realize when they think back to that period of time is is this is the small population of the of not just the United States but particularly of the South. Like, the, what was the population then? Something like thirty to thirty five million, um, you know, nationally. That was like the entire you know non Native American population of the of the United States, and you know half a million had been slaughtered in in the Civil War, and in the South there were a, there were a lot of places where freedmen and freed people made up a majority of those regions and arguably made up a majority of the entire South. And given the right to vote, uh, the, the, and also for a while, uh, given property in parts of Georgia, you know, there, there was a real path toward, you know, economic and political black power. And in order to, you know, make sure that they could maintain that power, a lot black communities had armed themselves. And there had been uh, a number of, uh, a number of people who had escaped slavery, 
who had served in the uh, Union Army, uh, others, other uh, who, who had already been free in the North who had in, enlisted, and many of those, you know, so now now had military training and military experience as well. So so they weren't just you know people who owned guns but didn't know what to do with them, and there were. You know, th- there's there's all, there's a lot of talk about the indiscriminate violence on on the part of the KKK and other kind of white terror organizations at the time, uh, but there was there were there was also shooting back. You know, you know, a lot of black organizations and and in, and just independent uh, bl- black men and women, um, you know, armed themselves to defend their communities, and this was something that the Klan just absolutely couldn't tolerate. Yeah, you know the cowards that they were. They they had they first before they would raid communities, uh, would use what legal methods they they still clung to to disarm the population, so that they could uh, th- they could then slaughter them um, with with uh, impunity, and so that was and so the Klan you know pushed through a bunch of uh, what they call black codes, and in places they just straight up banned. On, based on race, people from owning weapons. And when the federal government did manage to intervene, they would then pass those fake you know, colorblind laws that were very similar to poll taxes that would say, okay, you, know, you, can, you, can, own a, you can own a weapon, but you need a license from the sheriff uh, in order to, you know, the local sheriff in order to own a weapon. And, and here's the sheriff. Come on, ask him for, ask him for a license. Come on down. This is, this is the guy you're going to get a license from. And that guy's just absolutely not giving anybody black in the area a license to own a gun. Yeah. And so, and so they would use those types of, and then they even banned when, when that couldn't work, they just, they banned all of these really, really cheap guns. Um, so that, and that, that ended up catching up poor whites, but you know, the Klan has always been, you know, and the Klan and other white power groups have always been willing to throw poor whites overboard if they have to, right. uh, in order to di- disempower. Uh, black communities. And so, yeah, so the Klan was the, was the first gun control organization in the, in the U S really. It's a fascinating history and it, and it does connect with what's going on today. We did a episode, oh, I, maybe three or four months ago about the not fucking around coalition, this black militia that made an appearance at a few events, a few protests during the summer of racial justice protests in 2020. And, um, its leader was uh, arrested and prosecuted on charges that critics say were uh, dubious. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, again, we see this kind of double standard. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse hailed as a hero, utilizing the protections of these uh, very, very lax laws to get away with um, with killing people after he began a confrontation and uh, black folks not enjoying those same rights. Right. And yeah, right. Exactly. In the 1960s. People might forget that the name of the Black Panthers, the, the actual name is the Black Panther Party for Self Defense, and the, you know the, the the most provocative thing they would do is uh, is they would exercise these legal open carry laws in California, walk you know walking around you know with with weapons openly, uh, even even walking into the famously walking into the state capitol. Uh, it turned out to be tactically a blunder, um, but. But they were making the point that this is this is legal, and you know, people. Have, I've seen people. I've seen gun control advocates joke that you know the only way to get Republicans on board would be to do that again, because as soon as 
as soon as the Black Panthers started openly carrying weapons, all of a sudden, uh, Republicans started calling for gun bans. And the NRA backed, as I write about in that piece, the NRA backed that, that bill in California to, to, uh, you know, to basically to come after the Black Panthers. Uh, it was a gun control bill, and it was signed by Ronald Reagan, you know, who then the NRA then endorsed for president and endorsed for re-election. Yeah. And of course, um, Fred Hampton, the leader of the Black Panthers, uh, was um, murdered by Chicago Police Department in the 60s. Ryan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. This is a, a disturbing reality that I think people need to know about. I really appreciate it. You got it. Folks, stay tuned. We're going to take a quick break and then be right back. And we are back. I'm happy to welcome Anya Van Wachtendonk to the show. Uh, Anya covers misinformation for Grid, which you can check out at grid.news. And she co-authored with a couple of colleagues a piece titled The Hacked Account and Suspicious Donations Behind the Canadian Trucker Protests. Anya, welcome to We've Got Issues. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. So, I mean, just in case people have not been paying attention, let's let's just give them a, like a little... What is going on up in Ottawa and at several points on the U.S.-Canadian border right now? Yeah, so this has been going on now about two weeks. Um, What started out as kind of a protest against uh, a pretty industry-specific vaccine mandate, um, so that would require international truckers going across the U.S.-Canada border um, to be vaccinated has kind of really um, taken on a lot of anti-government sentiments um, more broadly, both across Canada, different points of entry, um, as you just alluded to, as well as um, in other countries, including the U.S. Um, and specifically in Ottawa, that's really kind of been the um, center of it. It has been two weeks of kind of nonstop protests, um, different sizes throughout the two weeks. At this point, it really is kind of a the last few hundred um you know, holdouts. Um, Over the weekend, though, it was quite a bit bigger, about 8,000 people, um, local police estimated. Um, And it has really just been ongoing, um, really centered around the trucking industry and the imagery of um, long haul trucks. Um, But by no means is it only truckers participating. Um, But that um, that's really been sort of the face of it. And the, the messaging around it is that this is like sort of on behalf of um, the professional freedoms of the trucking industry. 
And it's uh, turned out to be a huge pain in the ass of the people of Ottawa. Um, There's a poll that showed like 80 some odd percent of um, of locals want them to clear out. And there's been a lot of complaints about noise and honking all the time. I find it hard to escape some parallels between this action up in Canada and the January 6th insurrection here at home. Um, that's not an original observation, of course. Uh, both are assaults on the capital of a democracy by a group kind of representing a relatively small minority. Uh, according to reports, there are kind of two distinct groups in Ottawa. You have like pissed off anti-vaxxers and families and, and goofballs who believe in various conspiracy theories and are largely peaceful, um, at least so far, even if they heckle, you know, heckle people and there's some been some tension at times. And then according to reports, there is another group of more hardened individuals, including, according to the Canadian Broadcast Company, people with police and military experience who may be helping in terms of logistics and et cetera, et cetera. And that is very much what we saw on January 6th. There were like the MAGA tourists and the guy with the big horns who didn't know what they were doing. And then there were some kind of random thugs fighting with cops. And then the, the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys um, allegedly trained for the insurrection and had a, a plan to at least delay the transfer of power. Um, are you seeing connections between January 6th and this um, movement or action when you look at the networks that are promoting it on like social media? Yeah, I think that there are some parallels to be drawn, but I think it's also important to kind of distinguish between the really kind of um, distilled political fury of January 6th, which was very much around, um, as you mentioned, a you know a, a constitutionally mandated process that was taking place that day at the Capitol in an attempt to overturn it. Um, this is really... I think taken on because it's been two weeks, because it's kind of this like more entrenched and at this point more distilled movement. Um, I think it is important to draw parallels between kind of American right wing movements because so much of that um, imagery and rhetoric has really kind of made its way north um, without necessarily um, dismissing the things that make it unique and trying to draw that parallel to January 6th. And so you're absolutely right that there are these kind of far right and um, extremist elements, um, folks who track kind of known hate groups in Canada, um, see familiar faces that they, um, you know, that have been popping up throughout the protests. Um, but there really is, as you mentioned, kind of this um, mix of folks who are all kind of tacking onto this broader movement. And because it has been going on for so long, um, it really, I think, gives a lot of different folks um, opportunities to kind of uphold whatever their kind of pet movement is. So whether that is far right and extremist, and there have been, you know, reports of um, Nazi swastika flags, Confederate flags, yeah. um, three percenter imagery, which is sort of interesting in a Canadian context. Uh, <laughs> as that is, you know, a specific reference to the American Revolution. Yeah. Um, so I think that some of that kind of cross-border pollination is what feels really interesting and unique. Um, and yeah, so I, I want to be careful about those kind of parallels to January 6th because um, the goals, I think, are quite different um, and, and the context is different as well. Yeah, and I appreciate the nuance. I, I Just reading up on this, like I've seen some pieces. There was a, an op-ed... Maybe it was on CNN.com. I'm not sure, but it was it was talking about how this is a, a there is a uniquely Canadian flavor to this, 
as well as there being a lot of overlap. And you quoted a researcher in your piece saying, and I quote for sure, a large part of this is driven by cultural narratives that have emerged from the United States. So even if there's like different um, goals and a different, different structure here, different grievances, you have that conservative right-wing, uh, you know, white entitlement grievance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I mentioned in the intro that this has emboldened far-right groups around the world, partially because this has been so hard for local authorities to dislodge. Um, the police up there have said that there may not be a policing answer to this. There may not be a policing resolution. They're raising fines for all sorts of things and trying to um, do what they can to nip this at the bud. And it looks like, uh, according to the Department of Homeland Security, uh, they're warning that we will have our own trucker siege here at home. Uh, there have been reports that that has been gaining steam. How worried do you think we should be about truckers destabilizing supply chains and 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 whatnot? There was some talk this week on Fox News. I think it was Tucker Carlson. He was talking about how a few thousand trucks could starve out American cities. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first, it's important to note that even in in this Canadian context, um, the folks who are protesting, some of whom, as I mentioned, are truckers, some of whom are not, um, but those who are truckers, they do not represent the kind of broader trucking industry, um, both the largest um, representation of of trucking employers, uh, the largest industry group has come out against the protest and in favor of vaccines, as well as the largest um, truckers union, Teamsters Canada, has also come out against the protest and in favor of um, vaccines. And so, and, and, and something like 90% of Canadian truckers are vaccinated. Um, and so it's not necessarily a representative movement, but I think that your broader point, which is that you don't need every trucker um, to kind of get on board with this um, in order to really kind of snarl um, supply chains and, and ports of entry is very well taken. Um, and, and I think something that's sort of an interesting irony here and part of what my team and I have been trying to suss out as we try and understand kind of what is the um, the authentic kind of uh um, impetus behind this and what is the inauthentic and kind of coordinated online um, manipulation of this movement. Um, I think an important sort of thing to notice there is that the folks who do choose to um, snarl bridges, um, as we've seen, you know, in Detroit and um, ports of entry, um, uh, you know, ac- across the border, um, those are truckers kind of holding up other truckers, right? And so the people whose um, livelihoods are at stake are other truckers because they're the ones kind of getting stuck at the bridges, unable to perform their jobs. Um, And so I think it's just a a really kind of interesting um, point here that, you know, this really important industry um, has quite a lot of power, um, but is also kind of purporting to um, speak for a broader populace, um, regardless of whether that's true. And again, to reiterate in the Canadian context, um, where vaccines have really been kind of widely accepted, um, I think what we are seeing is a little bit of an adoption of um, American right-wing rhetoric and American kind of polarization um, that perhaps was less present in Canada up until quite recently. Yeah, yeah, we're exporting this stuff. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your reporting. Um, A pretty odd story. You wrote about how some nice lady in Missouri, some lady... (laughs) nice woman in Missouri has become an unwitting nexus for um, 
Truckmageddon organizing on Facebook. Tell us a little bit about that. How did, how did that happen? Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, I worked on this story with um, my investigative colleague, Steve Riley, and my tech reporter colleague, Ben Powers. And so we were kind of looking at um, the online mechanics behind um, the organizing of this, as well as the fundraising of this. Um, and Steve kind of came across, he was looking just into the largest Facebook groups that have been kind of coordinating this movement um, and found one person's name across, I believe, five of them, um, which is sort of unusual to see and perhaps points to a um, significant organizer for us to be speaking to. Um, And then when he actually reached out to her, it turned out that um, she was not the organizer. In fact, she had, um, her account had been hacked and stolen several years before. Steve kind of has the receipts of um, her daughter attempting to get the account back um, well in advance of this occurring. Um, And he was able to kind of verify that that had happened. And so it really, again, points to um, what in the misinformation universe is called uh, inauthentic online behavior, coordinated inauthentic online behavior, very jargony, but just a way of saying that, you know, it is not necessarily um, real people behind the scenes making this happen and funding it, which is not to say that the people on the ground don't necessarily believe in what they are doing. Um, and right. I think it's important to kind of pull out, again, the different um, motivations that people have here. Um, but certainly, I think when you feel like there is um, a huge movement backing you, that can really help then propel a movement. And so there is that um, sort of back and forth between authentic and inauthentic behavior um, in a movement like this. Whenever there is coordinated, coordinated inauthentic online behavior, is that <laughs> is there an acronym? Is it like Kiab or something? Acronym? Yeah, yeah, it's that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you nailed it. So whenever there's a kiab going on, there's always someone who says, oh, it's the Russians. It must be the right. Is there any um, evidence for or against the proposition that there is external manipulation? Because I think that we have lots of internal forces that tend to manipulate groups online. Yeah, I mean, not that um, we or other folks who have looked into this have seen in terms of like there being a clear one clear fingerprint here. Like um, fancy bear or something, right? Right, exactly. I mean, I, I think that um, this points to kind of a larger issue, which is that there really seems to be a limited amount of accountability for um, folks who would kind of leverage, again, some legitimate political grievances or, um, uh, you know, nobody's had a good time over the course of this pandemic. And so I right. think um, there's plenty of sort of uh, emotions at play here, as well as um, these right-wing movements that have been kind of gaining strength. Um, There's all kinds of sort of um, people and movements that can be leveraged here by people who traffic in misinformation, disinformation. Um, And so whether it is, you know, X actor or Y actor, we're certainly trying to um, uncover who some of those people are. But I think it's just also important to kind of recognize how easy it is for whomever those actors are um, to leverage real people um, and their real experiences in order to gain power, gain a quick buck. I mean, we are certainly seeing a ton of fundraising going on here, and it's really unclear where a lot of the money is coming from and then perhaps more importantly, where it is going. Yeah, and that's that's been the story that we've seen over and over again, um, certainly 
true of the MAGA movement, where there's been just an enormous amount of grifting. Fundraising has, of course, become a big part of this story after groups raised millions of dollars to support these protesters through GoFundMe, which then suspended the campaign and said they weren't going to pay out the money that had been raised because it was supporting illegal activities. That was after the the cops requested that they did that. Um, they have, despite that setback, raised a lot of money. CTV News reported that Americans may be donating more than Canadians to support the trucker siege, although that's not entirely clear. Um, there have been some infighting here at home among like Republicans and right-wing activists as a result of January 6th. Uh, the Republican National Committee censured a couple of their own for working on the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection. And this week, uh, Senate Majority Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, and uh, uh, Utah Senator Mitt Romney, kind of, and other Republicans, blasted the committee for describing the riots as a legitimate political discourse. Uh, you write that something similar is happening in Canada in response to this trucker siege among folks on the right, and and I should note that in Canada, you know the they don't have that hard right dominant faction. It really is a a country where the center right and the center left are where a bulk of the voters are. What, What is that looking like? How is that playing out? Yeah, there's a couple of, I think, really important differences between the U.S. political structure and that in Canada, um, namely that they are a parliamentary system. And so um, they have also just not seen kind of the same level of polarization that we have um, because a parliamentary structure is kind of definitionally a coalition based system. Um, And and one of the ways that that's played out has been through um, through the pandemic that there has really been consensus across um, the political spectrum in government on how to address COVID um, up until quite recently. So there was kind of universal consensus around um, lockdown measures and things like this. So although there wasn't really, there isn't a federal um, mandate, um, provinces were responsible for kind of implementing their own procedures. Um, There was relative uniformity there in a way that obviously we did not see here in the United States. And so I think it's really interesting that all of a sudden, um, so much of that polarization is starting to kind of emerge. And um, yeah, as as you kind of alluded to, that's uh, taking place in the um, confines of the Conservative Party um, in Canada, where the leader was just ousted, I think, like a week ago um, and has been replaced by someone who has kind of aligned with a more Trumpist, Trumperist. Trumpish. <laughs> language, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> whatever Trumpian. More... Trumpian, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, has been spotted wearing a MAGA hat, I should say, a red MAGA hat. Um, And so I think that they are seeing some of that sort of center-right versus far-right jostling taking place, you know, several years after um, we first started seeing that take place. And I think that that's a a fairly significant shift. Some of the political scientists that I've spoken to have really, um, you know, urged us not to downplay how significant of a shift that is, both like culturally and politically in Canada. And there was a piece last week, uh, was it CBC commentary? I'm not sure, Um, saying that the conservative party up there is finding itself kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because you have this core base, very activist base that is pushing them to embrace the trucker siege 
whereas the vast majority of Canadians, including um, if not a majority of plurality of Canadian conservatives, center center right conservatives, um, are uh, are opposed to the, to the siege. Um, but it's really interesting, both here and there, that we're at this point in the pandemic where, you know, most restrictions have been list, lifted. There are very minor, you know, mitigation um, mitigation measures in 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 place at this point, and yet it seems like the the people who are winning the debate about getting back to normal are uh, inflamed and enraged in a, in a way that, <laughs> that almost you would think that they were losing. Anyway, I believe we are out of time. Anya Van Wagtendok, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'd also like to thank Ryan Grimm and David Edwards, our producer and engineer. I'd like to thank the good folks from Alternate and Raw Story for supporting the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Joshua Hall, H-O-L. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, I'd like to thank all of you folks for tuning in. Have a terrific week. Second period. Where players dance with skates of flash, the home team trails behind. But they grab the puck and go bursting up, and they're down across the line. They storm the trees like bumblebees. They travel like a burning flame. We see them slide the puck inside. It's a 1-1 hockey game. Oh, the good old hockey game is the best game you can name. And the best game you can name is the good old hockey game.